I'm reading this morning the text from the first book in the Bible. It's the first chapter of Genesis. And verses 26 and 27. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. You know, I think that what makes an effective worship service is that that everybody uh, gets involved. Not everybody can preach. Um, Not everybody can direct music, but we can all be involved in worship and uh, contribute to the worship experience. One way we do that is to give... Um, our heart to the Lord in worship in the 20 or 30 minutes that uh, we're here for the message. Listening without talking and praying without ceasing. And I, um, uh, I know when we have a, a big number of people, it's so easy to get restless. So hang in there with me this morning as we get into God's Word. Verse 26 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, He created him, male and female, He created them. I heard Jack Taylor preach a sermon on salvation, on the soteria. I thought when I heard that sermon, one of the best sermons I've ever heard on the meaning of salvation, I was going to put that in the back of my mind and see if I could do something with it one day. Jack Taylor said that probably the greatest need of Christians today is just to wake up and, and realize, wake up to what happened to us when we were saved. Now that's a threadbare word, really, saved. That's a word we've used often, wears kind of thin, perhaps. Kind of like a country preacher's 10-year-old suit. We've used that word so much. I wonder if we really know what it means. If I were to ask a show of hands this morning, how many of you are saved? Probably 90% of us or more would lift our hands to say that we've been saved. But I'd ask you a second question. um, Are you acting like it? And you might say, well, I'm not really sure that I know what it means evidently because I didn't know that it meant, that had anything to do with the way I act. Uh, If it means more than forgiving the forgiveness of sin and that I'm going to heaven, I really don't know if I... If I know what the word means or not, I'm, I'm saved. A few years ago, an evangelist and myself went out to the home of a man who um, I had been told was, a, was a, an unbeliever, was not a Christian. And we went out to talk to him about salvation. And in our conversation, uh, we did a little small talk. And then I said, you know, we're here today to talk to you about being saved. And he said, oh, I've already been saved. I said, well, that's great. Well, was it when you were a young man or an adult? He said, no, just about two years ago, he said, I was saved. 
And I was just kind of probing a little bit. I said, well, were you in church? Was it in a revival meeting? Was there a preacher there? He said, no. He said, I was at, at work. I'm, I'm, I work in the oil field. He said, it happened out in the oil field one day. And I said, well, just tell me about it. He said, well, we were moving this oil field equipment and had this big boom on the back of this uh, uh, truck and it came into contact with some high voltage wire. And he said, for all rights and purposes, I should have been killed there that day. But he said, I was saved. He said, I, God saved me that day. Well, he, he really wasn't thinking in, in, in terms of what the New Testament's talking about when it says, For by grace are you saved, or believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Well, what does it mean to be saved? Well, to understand what salvation means, we have to go back to an understanding of what God had in mind when He put us here in the first place. I mean, what is the purpose of creation, of your creation? What is the reason for your being? Why did God create you in the first place? For salvation is bound up in that primal purpose, that original intention. Salvation is bound up. The meaning of it is found in what, it, what God puts you here to be and to do in the first place. And the clue to that is, is in this text... In fact, there's a threefold purpose for your creation and mine. In, in these words, let us create man in our image according to our likeness in order to have dominion. Now, in the statement, let us create man in our own image, suggest that the reason for your being is to be an extension of the divine presence so that man could be a replica of God, so that everywhere man was, God could be. He created you in order that God might invade the time-space world in which you live, in order that He might have a medium through, through whom He might manifest Himself. Now, the devil was already here, and God needed a creation through whom He could reveal Himself or manifest Himself, so He created us in order that through us He might invade the, the uh, time-space arena in which we live. Well, what does God look like? Even though God created this universe, what was He like? Well, God was like the man He created when that man was loving Him. God is like you when you're serving Him. God is like you when you're living for Him. And the reason why He created you is in order that tomorrow when you turn the key and you enter that business that you run, God might be there, living in your life, invading the time-space world of your life. He created you that tomorrow on 10th and anywhere where you change diapers or vacuum floors or wash dishes, God might be there. He created you in order that He might walk down the halls of Durant High School tomorrow and enter the classroom where you teach or study in order that God might be there. The purpose of your creation is in order that God through you might invade the time-space arena in which you live. He created you to be an extension of the divine presence. 
And He created you to be an expression of the divine personality, He says, according to our likeness. Now, I know there's overlapping here, but I think the first means is more external and visible, and the second is more internal and invisible. God created you in order that He might have someone through whom He might manifest His personality. God is love. And he needed somebody to express that love. God is patience. And so he created you to be an expression of that patience wherever you are. And God is holy and, and merciful and good and compassionate. And he needed a human being that would manifest that personality. And so God created us. And he said, in you I'm going to place my moral attributes so that you can extend me and my personality in the time-space arena. He created you to be like himself. Now occasionally preachers have sad responsibilities. I've had to stand by parents who have buried their children. And I tell you what, there's nothing any more heartbreaking than that. But sometimes preachers have happy occasions. I mean, they get to stand with the fathers when they view for the first time their children, their babies. Now, the problem with that is, you know, I've never really ever seen too many beautiful babies. I've really, as a matter of fact, I've only seen three, you know, in, in my lifetime. But you, you've got these, you know, here they are, and then you've got these cone heads and square heads, and they're all red, you know, and they've got these blotches all over them. And there stands that father, and he's just looking in that, and that's the most beautiful thing he's ever seen. You know, he's going to look at you in just a minute and see what you think. That's the pressure, you know. And, and, and uh, I used to, you know, just say, you know, as I look at it, you know, I always knew which one belonged to the father. It was the ugliest one in there. I mean, you could just pick out the ugliest one, and that was going to be the one. And, and I used to just kind of, you know, what do you think, Pastor? I just kind of go, huh? You know, just kind of think, speechless. Guy said one time, he said, I'll tell you something to say that's never wrong. It's always right. When that father looks at you and says, Pastor, how do you like our new baby? Just say, Jim, there's this kid screaming, blotched up, conehead, red. Just look at him and say, Jim, he looks just like you. I mean, it's never wrong. You're always right when you say that. One time God looked out over the battlements of eternity and He saw man down in the garden and He said, That's my boy. He looks just like me. And He said, when He saw Adam, the man before the fall, He said, That's very good. That's my boy. He looks just like me. He is an expression of everything that I am. When you look at my boy, Adam, you see all that I am, the attributes that I possess. That's why He created you, in order to be an expression of the love and the patience and the mercy and the kindness and the holiness of God, an expression of that personality. And He created you to be an exhibit of the divine power and the text says that He gave man dominion over all the garden. He said to man, you're going to have power and authority over everything that I've created. Rule over it and reign here in the garden. And everything 
All of the authority of God, all of the power of God, He bequeathed to man. He put in man's hand authority in His universe. And everything was subject to man's authority. There were no wild animals. I mean, they all aided His hands. There were no wild plants. All of them were subject to His authority and dominion and rule. For God had bequeathed to man His power and His authority. So that man, in the original intention, in the primal purpose, was to be an extension of the divine presence and an exhibition of the divine power and an expression of the divine personality. But something happened in the garden. Man sinned. And in order to understand what it means to be saved, a man has to understand the depths to which man has fallen. Man sinned. He disobeyed God. He took of the forbidden fruit. The woman said, I have a right to my own life. It was an act of independence against God. They rejected the right of God to control their lives and they struck out on their own. They didn't want to be an expression of someone else's personality. They wanted their own. They didn't want to be an extension of someone else's presence. They wanted their own presence. They wanted their own thing. They didn't want to just exhibit a divine power. They wanted power of their own. And so they thought, this choice that I will make will make me, will lift me above the level of inferior beings. I'm just somebody else's person. I'll take this choice and it will lift me above the level of inferior beings and I'll become God. And they made that choice, but it didn't make them God. For freedom without existence, without God is not freedom. It's life in a false position. And when they decided to reject the rule and the right of God upon their lives, they cut themselves off from the meaning of their existence. Now watch this. They were meant to be an extension of the divine presence. They were no longer that. They were an extension of the devil's presence. They were no longer an expression of the divine personality. They were an expression of the devil's personality. For Jesus said to them, Your father the devil you follow. And they were no longer an exhibit of divine power. They were an exhibit of man's weakness and Satan's power. And sin wreaked havoc in the garden and destroyed the original intention, the, the, the primal purpose of man. Man's reason and purpose for being was lost. Was lost. Now God didn't give up. As a matter of fact, He wasn't even surprised when man sinned. You know, it didn't catch him by surprise. He knew it was coming all along. And that's one of the amazing things about redemption was, is this, that God created you knowing that the plan, that the thing was going to fail to begin with. I asked one Sunday night, not long ago, would you start out on a project if you knew that project was going to fail when you started? I mean, would you invest your money in buying some land if you knew that investment was going to fail? You wouldn't do that. Would you start out on a project if you knew that that project was eventually going to cost you your son? You wouldn't do that. 
But he started out on this project of creation knowing that it was going to fail in the original, in, in, in the first place. He knew that man was going to sin, but he created him anyway because God had a greater plan. God's plan didn't fail, man failed. God had a, God had a solution. He planned fully for this failure of man. There was coming one, watch this, there was coming one who was going to restore man to his original position, to his original intention, the original intention of God. One was coming who would bring restoration to man. His name was what? Say it, was Jesus. For in Jesus, God demonstrated that man could be everything that God intended for him to be when He created him. Leighton Ford tells about the girl who enrolled in a course in Baylor University entitled Jesus of Nazareth, a course in New Testament on the life and works of Jesus. And this was her statement. She said, I'm not, I'm not taking this class in order to find out who Jesus was. I'm taking this class in order to find out who I was. For in Jesus Christ, God demonstrated everything that man was meant to be. You want to know what you were meant to be when He created you in the garden in Adam's loins? Just look at Jesus. That's what He meant for you to be. He was an extension of the divine presence. For everywhere that Jesus went, men were aware that God was there. I mean, they fell back in awe of Him. When He spoke, they didn't hear just man speak. They heard God's voice. He was an extension of the divine presence. He was an expression of the divine personality. You never saw Jesus do any way, act any way that God would not act. He chose His, not His part, but ours and God's will. He could be hated without hating in return. He could be mistreated without striking back. He could be crucified without hatred. He was an expression of the divine personality of God. And He was an exhibit of divine power. For all power was bequeathed to the hand of Jesus, and He had that power. Nothing bested him. Nothing bested him. Not the wind, not disease, not demons, not the cunning devices of evil men. Nothing bested him. Not even death, man's last enemy. And so when he came out of the grave with the keys of death and Hades swinging from his girdle, he proved that he was an exhibit of the divine power. Here was a man who was God. Here was a God who was man. Now watch. And in this man Jesus, and by Him, and because of Him, and through Him, you and I can have restoration. That's what it means to be saved. It means to be restored to the original plan. It means to be restored to the divine plan of God in the primal purpose of creation. It means restoration. Jack Taylor says being saved means that God is just fixing you up to function like He intended for you to function in the first place. I like that definition. Just fixing you up to function like you were meant to function. Now some people sit around and they talk about what 
hypothetically, what would it have been like in the garden if, if Adam and Eve had not sinned? I can tell you, you could say when they asked that hypothetical question, just look at me, just look at me. For I have the capacity to be everything that Adam could have been if he had not sinned. For I have been restored through Jesus Christ to that original intention. Now let me ask you the question. Are you an extension of the divine presence? I mean, where you go, you say you've been saved? I mean, we enjoy that using that term, I've been saved, I'm saved. Are you an extension of the divine presence? When you get into your home, do the children where you are, do they sense God there? When you unlock the door of your business and you go in tomorrow and your customers come, your clients, do they sense God there? When you walk down the halls of Durant High School and into the classrooms or at Southeastern, do they sense God there where you are? Are you an extension of the divine presence? Are you an expression of the divine personality? You say you've been saved? Now, some folks say, well, you know, I could be a better Christian, you know, but look where God's placed me. Let me tell you something. Watch. God will place you in the place where you can best express His personality. You can mark that down. That's where Jesus always was found, where He could best express the personality of God. So that's where God's going to always place you, where you can best express the personality of God. You say, I'm surrounded by immoral people. That's where God has placed you in order to express morality, purity, holiness. You say, well, where I am, there is just, I'm just immersed in sorrow. There's sorrowful people. God has placed you there to express peace and comfort. You say, well, where I work, people are frustrated and there's confusion all the time. That's where God has placed you to be an expression of a divine Sovereign will. You say, I live in the midst of moral decay. Remember what He called you? He called you salt. You say, I live in, the, in a condition of moral darkness. Remember what He called you. He called you light. He has put you in a place where you can be an expression of a divine personality. Are you an expression of that? You say you've been saved. Are you an exhibit of divine power? You say you've been saved. Are you ruling? Are you living in dominion? Now, I'm not talking about all of nature being subject to you and wind and waves ceasing when you put up your hand. I'm talking about living the reigning life, living triumphantly over circumstances, living in dominion over circumstances in life. Are you exhibiting the power of God where you are? Francis Schaeffer, the great theologian, contemporary theologian, told about traveling, flying across the ocean, flying from, from New York City to Europe. And he said, out over the ocean, both of the engines on one wing went out. And he said, Regardless, in spite of every attempt, we, we, we were losing altitude. And he said, all the time, I was sitting beside on the, on the, in the, uh, next to the window looking at those two engines on the right wing that would not operate. And he said, I was just praying that those engines would start. I bet he was. And he said, we just 
losing altitude, gradually losing altitude. He said, just before we plunged into the waves, he said, I felt the bump of those, that comforting bump of those engines start. And he said, in my prayer, I thank the Lord. Now, is it possible? Does God start airplane engines by prayer? Yes, He does. There is no circumstance over which God is not sovereign. Amen? If a Mount Everest blocks our path, that mountain is movable. And Jesus told His disciples, He said, I'm giving you authority, all authority in heaven and earth. And you can tread on serpents and scorpions and not even the demons will be subject to you. And even the demons will be subject to you. And the Scripture says that when they came back, I can almost see them, they just were in unbelievable awe at the power they had. Authority. Does that mean that God has given you that authority? Emphatically, yes. Emphatically, yes. Being saved means, watch, being saved means that I have the right to use the power of God in Jesus' name against everything that threatens me and live with rule and dominion. He's bequeathed that to me. Now, if you went out here and you bought you an automobile with a big... 400 horsepower engine. I know nothing about it. Does that sound... Is there such a thing as a 400 horsepower? I don't know anything about them, but it sounds good. If you went out and got you an automobile and it had 400 horsepower engine in it, you'd be pretty stupid if you went around pushing that that thing. You know, you got your wife and your kids in and say, okay, settle down, fasten your seatbelts, and you got in the back and pushed that, that car down the street. In the language of this illustration, it's pretty foolish for you to take from the Lord all authority and power and then go on through life pushing it. Why not just turn the key and claim with the authority that's yours? Why not just by faith claim the authority and the power that are already bequeathed to you as a saved man? Now, are you acting saved? an extension of the divine presence, an expression of the divine personality, an exhibit of divine power? If not, why not? Well, the only answers to that are these. You're either never, you have either never been saved or there is a dysfunction somewhere in your salvation life. That's the only answers, logical answers. You've either never been saved if you're not extension of the divine presence, exhibition of divine power, and expression of divine personality. You've either never been saved if you're not that, or there's a dysfunction somehow in your saved life. Now, there ever was a dysfunction in the life of Jesus, and this is the clue. He lived in continuous communion with the Father. I mean, he lived in an unbroken relationship with his Father God, and he did that in absolute obedience to the Father's will. Are you out of obedience? Are you living in disobedience to God? For you see, I hope you're listening. For you see, getting saved 
is not a means by which God is going to get you out of earth into heaven. Getting saved is a means by which God is going to get out of heaven into earth. It's the means by which God wants to extend Himself into the world, express Himself there, and exhibit His power there. Now, are you saved? Have you been saved? Have you been restored? If you say, yes, I've been saved, then why aren't you acting like it? That's a question that God and everybody else wants to know the answer. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that in Jesus Christ there has come one who has saved us, restored us to the original intention, to the primal purpose of the garden of creation. And Lord, I know that there are some of us today who have never been saved never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, never placed their confidence in Him, Him only. Help them to see Jesus now as their only hope, their only Savior. And there are some of us, Father, who are not acting like we're saved. We're walking after the manner of men, the children of disobedience. And I pray that we'll make those things necessary today to begin to act it. To confess sin that should be confessed, repented. To express faith, a faith rest life, to trust everything to you, to quit struggling in fleshly effort. And I pray for those, God, who need to get back to discover what happened to them when they were saved. Bless this invitation, Lord, to glorify you and extend your kingdom to the earth because I pray in Jesus' name. Now in a moment, we're going to give these invitations. The first invitation is for you to come trusting Jesus Christ for your salvation. He's the one that God sent to restore, to, to save you. He's the only one who can bring restoration. Have you ever trusted Jesus? Have you ever really been saved? There's only one way to God, that's through Him. The second invitation is for you to come to say, Pastor, I need to get back to God. I've drifted away from Him. I'm not an extension of His presence expression of His personality, an exhibit of His power. I want to be, I'm claiming what's mine in salvation. Or there may be some of you need to come and join the church. God's means of extending the kingdom, of preaching the gospel, of reaching the lost. Why don't we do it this morning while we stand and sing? You come.